Let's turn in the scriptures to Galatians chapter 5. We're in Galatians 5, and like I said, Lord willing, at the beginning of March, we'll come back and finish chapter 5 on the fruit of the Spirit, and then chapter 6 on what service looks like in the body of Christ. But uh, today we're studying Galatians 5, 1 to 15. Paul wrote this letter around A.D. 48, 49, somewhere in there. It was within 20 years of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. He wrote to churches that he had planted just maybe two years before in the southern Galatian cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. These young churches faced quick and intense persecution for converting from Judaism, where they had to obey the law of Moses, to Christianity, where they didn't have to. You had to trust Jesus alone to be right with God, and it had nothing to do with your performance of the Mosaic Law. Within one year, these churches had become influenced by outside teachers who urged the young believers not to be so drastic. These teachers said something, we guess like this, you don't have to completely abandon the law. You need to mix your faith in Jesus with obedience to the law of Moses. Trust Jesus, that's fine, but get circumcised, eat kosher, observe the holy days. Don't throw out the law that's been observed for centuries. That's how people are right with God. Paul wrote this letter to explain that the gospel that saves is Jesus plus nothing. It's trusting Jesus who died on the cross for our law-breaking, period. That's the point of Galatians. In the first two chapters, Paul explained autobiographically how he came to understand this gospel. And he shows from his own history that it didn't come from any human. It didn't get passed along by tradition. He received the gospel that he preaches from God. And it actually stands over as the authority over every human, including the lead apostle Peter. In chapters 3 and 4, then, he explained theologically how the law of Moses was never intended throughout history by God. It was never intended to reconcile people to God, but instead it was to point people, to highlight for people the one way of reconciliation to God, and that's through trusting Jesus, the Messiah, the once-for-all sacrifice alone. So the first two chapters are autobiographical arguing, the second two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, are theological arguing. And now, Paul begins to explain applicationally how we must live if we are reconciled to God through faith alone, through simply trusting him. So we read the first 15 verses like we often do. I'm going to read and then interrupt us with various explanatory comments throughout the reading. Paul writes in verse 1, For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. So Christ has freed us from enslavement, particularly the enslavement of trying to relate to God through obedience to the law of Moses. He's freed us from that. So he says, Christian, don't go back to the enslavement of trying to have a relationship with God through your performance, through your obedience. Verse 2, look, 
I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. Now, Paul does not think that the people to whom he's writing have decisively turned away from Christ yet. That's why he's writing to them, and he's actually, in just a few verses, going to call them brothers. And he's going to say, you've run well, and I'm confident that you're going to keep moving in the right direction. But he's warning them. It's either or. In terms of having a relationship with God, it's either by God's grace through Christ, or it's by your efforts to try to obey good enough. Either you relate to God through trusting Jesus, or you relate to God through attempting to obey the law. There's no third option. There's no mixture of the two. Those who rely on obeying the law to give them a relationship with God have rejected Jesus as the one and only way to be reconciled to God. You don't think Jesus is enough. According to Paul in these verses, you either trust Jesus alone or you don't. Paul continues in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith... We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope or the certain expectation of righteousness. Paul puts this in a future tense, meaning those who follow Jesus know we are certain that on the day we stand before God our judge, we will be declared righteous because of Christ. Because Christ, the righteous king, is our advocate in the throne room. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What a statement. Paul, a Pharisaic Jew, says circumcision now means absolutely nothing. The only thing that matters in the world is are you trusting Jesus And is your faith in Jesus not a dead faith, but a living faith that produces the fruit of love in your life? Wow. According to Paul in these first six verses, I would just summarize kind of the main idea like this. On the one hand, Christians, don't ever leave the freedom of trusting Christ to go back to the slavery of trying to relate with God through obeying the law. Christ has set us free from the law's requirements and the law's punishments. Don't backtrack. That's what he's saying in these first six verses. Then Paul reasons with the Galatians in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you, a reference to God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He's here saying, essentially, Galatian believers, reject every little speck of these false teachers' teaching. And then he reassures these believers in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now when Paul refers to the one who's troubling you, whoever he is, He's not indicating that he doesn't know the names of the false teachers. 
Paul has been made aware of the current situation in great detail. I would guess that he knows the names, the specific names of the people who are teaching a false gospel in southern Galatia. What he says when he says whoever he is is instructive for us because he's indicating that the church should expect to be fighting false teaching as long as the church exists. In other words, he says whoever he is anticipating you're going to face false teachers in years ahead too. And you need to realize that you need to keep true to the one true gospel and don't let anyone, whoever they are, whether today or tomorrow, whoever it is, don't let anyone get you off track from the one true gospel. Verse 11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. In other words, if I compromise with the message of these Judaizers, these people who are saying you need to mix the gospel with obedience to the law, why am I being persecuted? No, instead, he says, I preach the cross, which is an offense to them. Verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would just emasculate themselves. Wow. Paul rarely gets more heated than he is here. He's a follower of the crucified Messiah, and Paul has been suffering for years for it. Paul and the Galatians are being persecuted by those who think they understand the Old Testament law and the requirements for circumcision, but in fact they have no clue how to read the Old Testament. That's what chapters 3 and 4 are all about. And in verse 12, Paul writes with bitter sarcasm, if circumcision means so much to them, why don't they just cut off more? Why don't they just mutilate themselves? And if you know the Old Testament, you know that Paul is being horribly bitter in his sarcasm. Because if you're emasculated, if you've mutilated yourselves, you're not part of God's people. You have no access to the temple. You're not a true member of God's community. And Paul says, I just wish they would go ahead and make it clear that they are outsiders to the people of God. Wow. Here's how I'd summarize the second paragraph that we read. Christians, get back on track and stop listening to teachers who oppose God's gospel and will face God's judgment. They will bear the penalty, as Paul said in verse 11. They're going to face God's judgment. You don't walk down that same path and face the same consequences. Get back on course. Paul essentially says following Jesus is tough. It involves persecution. But rejecting Jesus is eternally worse. It incurs God's wrath. Pick up reading in verse 13, the last paragraph of today's text. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only... Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You can find it in Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. In this third paragraph, Paul jumps to the other side. He had said on the one hand, don't go back to legalism, on the other hand, he says, don't live as if you can just do life however you selfishly want. He says, on the other hand, Christians, don't ever think that following Jesus frees you to live selfishly. 
Jesus frees you to love and to serve others. He basically says when Jesus liberated you from the law, he didn't liberate you to live however you selfishly please. And he indicates very clearly in verse 15 that living according to our selfish wants is destructive to others. No, Jesus frees us to love and serve others. So I would state the main idea like this. It's a challenging passage to wrap up in one idea, but I would say it's something like this. If Jesus is your only hope for being reconciled to God forever, then never again live in the slavery of your own performance. Or, on the other hand, in the destructiveness of your own selfishness. On the one hand, never go back to living as if your obedience is going to give you a relationship with God. And on the other hand, don't ever think that Jesus just frees you to live however you please. That's destructive to others. You know that from your former lives. Jesus frees you to live in love for others. Now, I think we need to accurately understand the reading. I've wrestled through how to preach and how to apply this message. And uh, throughout the week, I've just come to the sense, like, I think the best way that I can serve you is by coming to terms with four key ideas in this and bringing out the application of essentially keep trusting Christ in every case. I've really wrestled with whether to go back through the paragraphs and whether to bring out this or that. I've just zeroed in on four key terms, four key concepts that are in Galatians 5, 1 to 15. And I think it's absolutely critical that we understand these four terms right because they can be either ambiguous or confusing for for everyone, for every reader. So I'm going to delve into four concepts and try to explain and apply each. The first concept is the concept of freedom. You see this particularly in verse 1. It's the second word of today's passage. For freedom. Christ has set us free. You also see it in verse 13 that he's called us to freedom. For many, freedom is an ambiguous term. What does it mean to be free? Well, many people define freedom as the ability to do whatever you want without hindrance. And I would argue instead that the biblical definition is the ability to do whatever you were created to do without hindrance. Think about the first definition. Freedom is the ability to do whatever you want without hindrance. That's how most people think of freedom. Is that what Christ has freed you to do? To be able to live however you want with no one resisting you or hindering you. I love our national anthem. What does it mean that the star-spangled banner waves o'er the land of the free? Does it mean that we in America are free to do whatever we want and no one has the right to stop us? That's what many people think it means. Are you free to carry a gun into a daycare center? Are you free to drive 100 miles an hour out here on 528? Are you free to sell medicine without a permit? Would you want to live in a land of absolute freedom? 
where everyone is allowed to do everything they want without hindrance. That would be the scariest place to live. That would be anarchy. True freedom is the ability to do whatever you were created to do without hindrance. Without influence from a God-hating world tempting you always to live in a way that's contrary to the way God made you. Or without the the hindrance of your self-centered heart always bent in the direction of doing things out of self-interest rather than others' interest. If you could be freed from the power of the world and free from the power of your own selfish heart, that would be freedom. (laughs) We're made to love God and others. That's what it means to be truly human. To love the God who made us. To love others for His sake. A fish is most free when it's inside of its tank, not when it's outside of its tank. And a human is most free when it can love God and others without hindrance, doing what we were made to do. According to Galatians 5, only Christ can truly set us free. The law cannot. The law does not have the power to change our hearts from selfish to being Godward, rebellious to God, to submitted to God. The, the, the law doesn't have the power to grant us eternal life. Only Jesus can. And when Paul says that Christ has liberated us or given us freedom, he clearly means that Christ has done what the law couldn't. It frees us from the law's requirements, it frees us from the law's punishments, and it frees us from the law's powerlessness to fix our hearts. According to Paul, freedom is not the ability to do whatever I want. It's the ability to live without hindrance the way God made me. Free. Free from shame. Free from selfishness. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can free you from your past shame. Only the gospel can free you from the power of selfishness in the heart. What can free you from fear about the future? The gospel. Your bank account can't. The gospel can. What can free you from the fear of death? Only the gospel. There's freedom in Christ. He can free us from the fear of the future, from the fear of death. He can free us from the power of resentment and bitterness and anger. There are dozens and dozens of testimonies to that throughout this building. Christ can free us so that we can desire and pray for blessing on our enemies. What can free us from the power of addiction? Again, there are testimonies after testimonies of people in this congregation who say, God is delivering me from the power of my sin habits. Praise God. Religious rituals can't give you the freedom that Christ can. Only Christ can set you free. Trusting Jesus alone can restore humans to being what God intended us to be. Only the gospel can do that. You might be here thinking, I've had a twisted view of religion. I've always thought that maybe it was going to Sunday school or walking an aisle. Or I've thought 
that it was going through religious rituals or being part of the right religious organization. No. Faith in Christ alone can free you from sin and death. Faith in Christ alone can free you now and forever to live a human life as God intended. It won't be perfect today. It will be perfect. You will be without death or tears or any trials in just a few years. You follow Christ, it alone can free you to live the human life that God intended every human to live. I urge you to repent and turn to the Lord if you have not. The second key term is circumcision. In Christ, circumcision means nothing. This is the second term we have to make sure we clearly understand. Circumcision, for nearly 2,000 years, was the sign that you belong to God's people. God commanded that every boy descended from Abraham be circumcised. The law of Moses continued this command to circumcise every boy who was part of the people of Israel. It signified the covenant promise that God had made with his people. Namely, that God had promised to bless all nations through our offspring, through our seed. Through our seed, God is going to restore blessing to all peoples on earth. Circumcision signified that covenant promise. The fact that God's people had practiced circumcision for 2,000 years before Paul wrote makes Paul's statements in Galatians 5 astounding. The only way you can rightly hear Galatians 5 is if you understand the importance of circumcision to the Jewish community. Paul himself had grown up a Pharisaic Jew. And verse 2, this former Pharisaic Jew says, If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God then Christ cannot help you. What a statement. He's saying circumcision can't reconcile you to God. It can't make you part of God's people. Trusting circumcision, he goes on to say, insisting on circumcision will lead to God's judgment. Verse 6, he says, quote, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Hear that through the ears of his former Jewish community. Circumcision means nothing. It has zero effect on your relationship with God. Wow. Paul is teaching that if you believe that circumcision is critical to you belonging to God or being reconciled to God, then you will face God's judgment because you are clearly not trusting Jesus alone. You either trust Jesus, the one to whom circumcision pointed for 2,000 years, saying he is the promised offspring who can restore blessing to all nations, or you trust your keeping of the law. It is either or, it's not both and. Now in Paul's mind, circumcision represented an entire way of living, an entire way of thinking. Look at it in verse 3. He says, circumcision represented a commitment 
to obeying the entire law of Moses. All the holidays, all the dietary regulations, all the clothing restrictions. Circumcision was just like the tip of the iceberg in terms of the whole way of approaching God through obeying the law. But circumcision also, ever since Paul wrote Galatians 5 all the way till today, circumcision really represents any legalistic approach to God. It's not just that Paul is concerned about legalism in Judaism. He would be concerned about legalism in any church, no matter what form it takes. So I ask, do you believe that it's required for you to be baptized to have a relationship with God? That's just like circumcision. It's legalism, thinking that your relationship with God is dependent upon your performance of some religious ritual. I trust Jesus and I do X. Even though the issue for you might not be circumcision, you still need Galatians 5. Do you think that attending Mass in order to have a relationship with God is critical? Do you think that partaking in the Eucharist is critical? Do you think that confessing your sins and being absolved by a priest is critical? You need Galatians 5. You might not be hung up on the circumcision issue, but you're hung up on a different version of legalism. Do you think that carrying the right version of the Bible is what you need to have a relationship with God? Many people do. Do you think that having a relationship with God depends on you remembering the day of your conversion and having it written in the front flyleaf of your Bible? Do you think it depends on you having experienced the gift of tongues? So many people say you need Jesus, but if you think you have a relationship with God, but you haven't done this or performed this or done this ritual, it's legalism. Those are just some examples of things that creep in and add mixture to the pure gospel of trusting Jesus alone. What Paul says in Galatians 5 about circumcision must be applied to any and every religious ritual that people try to add to faith in Jesus in order to think that they're reconciled to God. The third critical term is cross. Notice in verse 11 that Paul refers to the offense of the cross. Paul is thinking like this. If you think that the surgery of circumcision has the power to reconcile you to God, then you remove the offensiveness of the message of Jesus' crucifixion. You soften the hard edge of the message of the cross. Paul knows that if we rightly understand the message of the cross, it is inherently offensive. How so? Well, when we look at the cross, we understand our own sinfulness. My sin is so bad that the only way of dealing with it was for Jesus to hang naked on the cross. And the cross 
also loudly proclaims my powerlessness to save myself. I couldn't do it myself. I can't do it at all. Jesus on the cross had to do it. The cross screams how bad my sinfulness is and how weak my powerlessness is. It's offensive. Greg often quotes Milton Vincent's gospel primer. The cross, Milton wrote, exposes me before the eyes of other people. It informs them of the depths of my depravity. Milton wrote, if I want others to think highly of me, I'd conceal the fact, this is the passage that Greg always highlights in, uh, in his comments, I would conceal the fact that a shameful slaughter of the perfect son of God was required that I might be saved. But when I stand at the foot of the cross and am seen by others under the light of the cross, the most humiliating gossip that could ever be whispered about me is blared from Golgotha's hill. Are you concerned that people could talk behind your back? He's a sinner. A really bad one. That's the gossip that the cross is screaming about me. It took the shameful slaughter of the perfect Son of God to save a wretch like me. The cross is inherently offensive. And every believer must continue to embrace the offensiveness of the cross. That we can't save ourselves. And my rebellion is so bad it demanded the crucifixion of the holy Jesus. Christians, I pray that we just keep singing. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. The cross offensively declares that the world is lost. Modern people say that kind of message is psychologically damaging. Telling people that they're bad. Telling people that they need Jesus in order to be fixed in the heart. Contemporary evangelicals won't even bring up the offensiveness of the cross in their preaching because they say people are depressed enough. They don't need to get it again on Sunday morning. But the cross is the only thing that's honest about my nature. It's the only thing that's honest about my condition and about the punishment that I deserve and that the scripture says is coming. The cross is honest about my need. And the cross is the only thing that can lift me out of it. Because the cross showcases God's love for a wretched sinner like me. That's why we say, I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Let's never stop embracing the offensiveness of the cross. Saying, you know what? Maybe we needed Jesus, but... We need some more. We need to add to Jesus' cross with our religious rituals. God forbid. Fourth and finally, the last concept is love. Paul affirmed in verse 6, circumcision means nothing 
but only faith working through love. And he says again in verse 13, Christians, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for selfish living, but through love serve one another. He explains in the next verse that love fulfills the law. Clearly, Jesus chose to love us and die for us on the cross in order to free us from the punishment of our selfishness and from the very power of our selfishness. He freed us so that we would live in love. Love for God and love for others like we were created. Now again, love is so misunderstood in our day. Most people think that loving someone else means that you just warmly support their decisions. But if we all stop to think about it, we know that love is so much more than that and different from that. Think about what it means to be a loving parent. Think about what it means to be a loving friend. Think about what it means to be a loving teacher. Think about what it means to be a loving spouse. Does it mean that you give warm approval to whatever your student or whatever your spouse or whatever your child decides? We know it doesn't mean that. We know that love sometimes confronts others. We know that love keeps giving to others, even to those who don't deserve it. We know that love, beautiful love, powerful love, keeps on loving even in the face of rejection. See, love does not refer to a warm support of another's decisions. That's our culture's confusion on love today. Love instead, according to the scriptures, means something like one person's warm sacrificial commitment to another person's best. Even when that other person does not know what is best for them. Paul says at the end of verse 6 that the one thing that essentially matters in life is faith working through love. Trusting Christ's love on the cross that produces the fruit of love in our lives. Now just before I end, I'm just about done, I just want to make one clarification on that statement, faith working through love. And it actually is a clarification. I pulled images from the DVD that we gave out a few years ago on Resurrection Sunday called American Gospel. That documentary did a great job of clarifying the biblical gospel from a false gospel. The false gospel says... Faith plus works equals salvation. It views love being worked out in your life as the root of your salvation. You trust Jesus, and then you show throughout your life that you love him and love others, and you earn salvation. That is a false gospel. The apostolic gospel says that faith alone in Christ saves you, And the way that you know that your faith is genuine, that it's alive, is that it bears the fruit of love. Love is a fruit of the Spirit that's produced in the lives of those who follow Jesus. It's not faith plus love equals salvation. It is faith saves you and you know your salvation is genuine because the Spirit is working within you to produce the fruit of love. Now I end here, Tri-County. We're all in different circumstances this morning. 
Some are young, some are old. Some are happy, some are sad. Some are rejoicing, others are grieving. Some are relaxed, others are exhausted. Some are hopeful and future-looking. And others are despairing as they look back at the past. Some are victorious. Some of us in here are defeated. And I pray that what this passage does for us is that it refocuses us on the one thing in life that really matters. Clear away all of your circumstances and your trials and your frustrations and your goals. And the one thing that matters today and forever is there in verse 6. Faith in Christ that works itself out in love. So many things swirling through our minds this morning. What's coming ahead today? What's coming ahead this week? The what ifs, the I can't wait. The one thing that matters in human life. Are you trusting Jesus alone to be right with God? And is Christ's Spirit at work in you producing the fruit of love? Christian, I just pray that a message like this clears away all of the smoke, all of the confusion of what matters in life. And you come down to verse 6, and you leave here saying something like, I've got Jesus, and he's enough. Jesus died for me. How could I doubt that he loves me? Jesus, I'm going to trust you no matter what today or this week or this year holds. And I trust that you will leave here saying something like, Jesus, thank you for dying for all of my self-centeredness. And thank you for your work of regeneration in my heart that is changing me. I'm not where I should be, but I'm not where I was. You're at work in me, Jesus. When we look at the faith that God has given us and the love that's being produced in us, we should say something like, Jesus, I'm clinging to you. I'm trusting you as my only hope for being right with God. And I thank you that your spirit is at work in me to keep producing in me love for you and others. That's all. That's all that matters. Father, I ask that you would refocus us on the one thing that matters so that we would leave here rejoicing in Christ's cross and thankful for your spirit that's producing love in us. Lord, I ask that for some in here who are not followers of Jesus, that today would be the day that they turn from trying to earn a relationship with you through keeping the law, through keeping the Ten Commandments, through being a good person, that they would turn from their own righteousness and admit that the only one who can save them is Jesus who died for them. I pray that they would embrace the shame of the cross and embrace the love of the cross. God, I pray that Tri-County as a congregation, as a whole community of believers, would keep trusting the cross and would keep letting your spirit work within us to produce 
love. Work in us graciously, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.